Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And as you probably know by now, the last month has been dedicated to the thousand-plus-page sprawling epic of time, magic, childhood, friends, and monsters, the horror classic It. I spent three weeks analyzing the novel itself, provided a bonus episode on its connections to the Dark Tower, and this week I'll examine the popular 1990 ABC TV movie that popularized the main character and established its rightful rule as the king of scary clowns due to the magnetic and unforgettable performance by Dr. Frankenfurter himself, the always incredible Tim Curry. Now just a brief look back at the movie. It came out in the fall of 1990 on ABC, and for me personally, it made me want to read the book. Watching commercials of Tim Curry as Pennywise stuck with me. That image, him holding the balloons, laughing, pointing at the screen. It held me in a vice-like grip, and it just wouldn't let me go. The following March, I picked up the book, and it changed my life forever. As you'll see in this episode, I'm critical of the movie, but I'll say this. If it wasn't for the movie, you wouldn't be listening to the Stephen King cast right now. The commercials for that movie drove me to find the book, and the book sank its claws in me and kicked off an obsession that lasted until today, though... Despite a weekly podcast, I wouldn't call my current status an obsession. If you were to chart my fandom status, my obsession peaked probably around 16 years old when I was rereading a number of his books, trying to connect them to the Dark Tower. Um, I mean, there was a good chunk of my time in my 20s post-Dark Tower series where I was just simply a a casual fan. Um, But anyway, uh, back to the the here and now. Uh, Today we're looking at the two-part TV movie, uh, which is very much like your memories of childhood. Some good, some bad, and a lot's probably pretty forgettable. It currently holds a 6.9 rating on IMDb and a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's considered below average, but regardless of the average rating, one thing that will withstand the test of time is Tim Curry. There are iconic Stephen King character adaptations, love it or hate it, but Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance is one, Sissy Spacek as Carrie is another, Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes is another, and right at the top is Tim Curry as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. If you don't like the ABC TV movie, that's fine. I don't blame you. But I will fight you if you don't think that his performance is anything less than stellar. To say that it's terrifying and magnetic is a complete understatement. Now, as you know, uh, It is being remade as a two-part theatrical release helmed by True Detective's Corey Fukunaga. The success of True Detective's stunning direction has a lot of people eagerly anticipating what he has in store for us. On my Facebook page, I posted a couple scenes that show off what he'll be able to bring to the table. One is the slowed-down, atmospheric reveal of the gas-mask, underwear-clad, machete-wielding villain. Just thinking of that scene played over Matthew McConaughey's monologue about the monster at the end of our dreams with the thudding drones of the music. It just gave me chills. It's a storytelling moment that did wonders with the tone of the series and created a genuine threat with that particular character. Another scene that I posted was the montage of Matthew McConaughey, again, switching out cocaine in the evidence room while Lucinda Williams' Are You Alright plays. Again, it's a scene that provides a lot of information, and I keep imagining a clever montage of the losers, either past or present, played over an appropriate song. These are just two examples of what he can do as a director. I mean, the entire last episode plays like Fukunaga's audition tape for the level of dread that he'll be able to build in that movie. In that uh, particular episode, we're treated to disturbing visuals, creepy character interactions, a terrifying showdown, and a cramped subterranean maze with cosmic overtones. If you haven't watched True Detective, you should for a number of reasons. But from a Stephen King fan perspective, you need to watch it while imagining what Fukunaga is able to do. And of course, the first two acts of the show are built with the dual narrative of past and present characters, much in the same way that the novel is structured around the past and present losers. So it's perfect. I mean, no one's doubting that from a directorial standpoint that Fuganaga is going to knock it out of the ballpark. The only question mark, and it's a big question mark, is is he going to be able to cast an actor that can step out of Tim Curry's shadow? The success of the movie is going to ride on the actor's ability to put his or her own stamp on the character, much in the same way that Heath Ledger had to make audiences forget Jack Nicholson when he stepped into the role of the Joker. Whoever gets cast is immediately, immediately going to be compared to Tim Curry. It's going to be tough. It'll be a challenging undertaking for whoever gets the job, which is why I believe that they're going to be incredibly strategic when selecting the actor or actress. Um, And I say actress because it wouldn't be a bad move at all to recast the role for a woman. 
Keep in mind that the pronoun used when describing a character isn't him, but it. So if it was cast with a male, there's nothing to say that it can't be cast as a female. You know, I know that a couple fan casting websites, Tilda Swinton has been mentioned. You know, what better way to distance yourself from the Tim Curry role um, is there but by switching genders completely? I think it could work. Now, whoever they get, I think it's going to be a huge casting announcement. First of all, in order to get out of the shadow of Curry, they're going to have to go big. Secondly, Warner Brothers made the decision to produce the movie under New Line Cinema in the hopes of reinvigorating their horror property. Keep in mind that New Line Cinema was always known as the house that Freddy built. The fact that Warner Brothers, who is also producing the big-budget four-part epic The Stand, wants to use it to rebrand its sister studio, it's a big show of faith in Fukunaga, and makes me believe that if this is their intention, they're going to swing for the fences much in the same way that they did with the casting of Matthew McConaughey as Randall Flagg in the aforementioned Stand remake. So, the question is, who could they get? Unfortunately, I don't think they're going to get Tim Curry. Let's just put that up in front. I mean, I, I think that if they were able to get Tim Curry, it would be an amazing bit of casting. I mean, what better way to reinforce the cyclical nature of it than by casting the actor who put the character on the map almost 30 years ago? You know, it would be a great meta move, with the viewer having memories of the clown, much in the way that the losers have memories of the clown. And it would squash any question of whether or not the actor could top Tim Curry. The question would be, could Curry top himself? Now... I, I don't believe that this is a possibility because I've heard that uh, he has some health issues that would rule him out of contention, which is too bad, but it opens up the door for another actor or, like I said, actress. So, who does that leave? Um, so here are some possibilities that I've heard around, um, heard floated around. Now, keep in mind, these are not official rumors. This is nothing from the producer or the screenwriter or the director or the head of the studio or anything. These are simply fan casting rumors I'm not, not even rumors fan casting hopes and dreams of actors that they would like to see um, so I'm only putting it out there as fan enjoyment and not is anything resembling news I just want to put that right up there but here are some fan casting um, actors uh, and actresses uh, in the part of Pennywise the Dancing Clown number one is Crispin Glover much in the same way that the fan community wanted him to play the Joker, it looks like they want this guy for Pennywise. Now, personally, something about him just seems a little too creepy right off the bat. You know, as I'll get into, part of the reason why Curry is so memorable is that he has a charm that lures you in. That doesn't mean that's the only interpretation of the character that you have to go with, but I personally believe it's the right interpretation. And... Uh, I don't know. I, I just think that Crispin Glover would be creepy without that charm piece. Number two is Tony Todd. It's Candyman. It's Death from the Final Destination movies. Would Tony Todd be good? I don't know. I mean, he'd certainly be creepy, but would he be animated enough to pull off a clown? That's the question. Number three is Tilda Swinton. Again, I think in clown makeup, it should be terrifying, but I have a hard time visualing her being anything but terrifying. Um, so, I, again, that charm piece. can't see her luring, luring us in. Number four is Gary Oldman. Now, we know that Gary Oldman can pretty much do anything. He can play villains like nobody's business. He can play a smooth operator. He can play an overworked uh, public employee hero. I think this would be a safe and unflashy casting move that and it's the reason because it would be safe is the reason why they wouldn't uh, give it to him. Number five is, if New Line Cinema is the house that Freddy built, why not bring it back full circle and have Freddy himself, Robert England, play the role? It'd be a meta move and would be buzzed about, but you know I think that we know what we'd get, and that's why we wouldn't get it. Now, here are some ones that I haven't seen um, that I'm just putting out there. The first... Uh, I put on Instagram a few months ago, and uh, it was seeded to me um, a few years ago by author Joe Sherry, who came up with the the idea. Um, that's Eddie Izzard. Now, it's not your obvious choice, but this guy oozes charisma, oozes it. He's versatile. He's ridiculously charming. I think that he'd be able to lure you in and then bite off your arm. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen... Um, anything with Eddie Izzard, you know, you can definitely go out and watch his performance in Hannibal most recently, uh, where you really get to see the, 
just the sinister nature of him. Uh, I just recently watched United States of Terror, actually. I was surprised that he was in it. Um, and then there was a, a Brian Fuller pilot that, that never made it. It was a Monsters, uh, the Monsters reboot, uh, Mockingbird Lane. Um, and he played Grandpa Monster, and he was great. And I wish that the, the show, the pilot, had gone to series just to see more of him. So he's someone that could... It's not even to say pull it off. I mean, he could knock it out of the ballpark. I think that would be fantastic. Number two, all right, uh, is one that I would love to see. I'm very excited about uh, the possibility of this one happening. And that is Brian Cranston. It's Walter White. He's established himself as a TV legend. And he's one of the hottest buzzed actors working today. Walter White working with True Detective's Corey Fukunaga would be a fan's dream come true. And when it comes to versatility, I don't know if he could do much better than him. Look at his range. From Malcolm in the Middle to the various range of emotions displayed during Breaking Bad, he can play goofy, charming, funny, terrifying. In the final episodes of Breaking Bad, we see him fly through a flurry of emotions in a space of seconds. This rubber band ability to snap from one emotion to the next would be needed in crafting the unpredictability of the character. He would own Pennywise in a way that most other safe bets wouldn't. So... I, I just, I, I think that the internet would explode if Brian Cranston was cast in this role. But I think that explosion would pale in comparison to the next uh, person that I would like to see take the role. And that is the one, the only, Tom Hanks. Think about that casting announcement. You think people talk about Matthew McConaughey being cast as Flag? That would pale in comparison to the amount of pieces written about Hanks as Pennywise. Then think about Hanks as Pennywise. Think about how much you like Tom Hanks. Think about his likability. What better actor to lure you in? Remember that the part of Pennywise's terror is that when he's first presented, he's incredibly pleasant and nice. If I saw a cloud in the sewer, I'd run so that whoever you get, that person has to be able to lure you in with charm and kindness. So what better actor to lure you in than the nicest guy in the world? That would be so awesome to see. So any one of those three, um, Eddie Izzard, Brian Cranston, or Tom Hanks, would be great in my opinion. So, but I've kind of got my mindset on Cranston and Hanks now, you know. And maybe I shouldn't have thought about this because if they get anybody else, I'm going to be disappointed. Now, what about the losers? Here's some fan casting that I've heard. Um, listener Jerry emailed me back in uh, December from WordandFilm.com, and the article writes. Constant readers rejoice. Stephen King's It is finally well on its way to a big screen adaptation. The 1986 novel follows a group of seven kids being terrorized by a predatory, shape-shifting entity who most often takes the form of a clown. The children later return to fictional Dairy Maine as adults to stop the creature once and for all. It is a coming-of-age tale and a bittersweet examination of the loss of innocence. King's 1,100-page tome... Or is it Tomei? I never know. Was originally adapted as a made-for-TV movie in 1990. Despite that version's low budget and questionable effects, it was a solid adaptation in its own right and sported a pitch-perfect cast anchored by a chilling performance from Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown. We already know that the latest adaptation will be split into two films and helmed by True Detective director Corey Fukunaga, who is also writing the screenplay. So the question to answer now is, who exactly will fill out the ensemble cast? And this is who they say. Bill played by Peter Krause, which I think would be great. I really like Peter Krause. Uh, um, well, I'll get to that in a second. Then we have Beverly Marsh, uh, Jessica Chastain, Ben Hanscom, Michael C. Hall, Eddie Casbrack, Ben Foster, Mike Hanlon, Idris Elba, Richie, Zachary Levi, Pennywise, Jackie Earl Haley. My thoughts, I wouldn't want to see Jackie Earl Haley or sorry, Jackie Earl Haley as Pennywise. I loved him as Rorschach and Watchmen, but I just can't see him as Pennywise. Um, as for the others, uh, Jessica Chastain would be awesome as Bev, uh, and I know that fan casting has also pinpointed Lauren Ambrose as being a serious contender. Um, I'm going to throw out, even though she doesn't have red hair, Abigail Spencer, um, who I think is phenomenal. But like I said, Peter Cross would be um, rock solid as Bill. I think that that is a very, very charming uh, magnetic actor. Um, on a side note, about 10 years ago during a reread of The Dark Tower, I pictured a young Peter Krause as Eddie. Um, Peter Krause would be good, but the guy that I was envisioning while I was rereading it most recently uh, is Corey Stahl. 
who will be seen in the upcoming Ant-Man movie, uh, who is the star of The Strain. Uh, and the thing that's great is that the dude's bald, and I would like to see a uh, the, the, the protagonist of a 2000-whenever-it-comes-out movie be a bald guy. I, I think that that would do wonders for um, the progression and uh, the the it would be a, a big step in the world of bald actors. Um, now I can't really picture uh, really any of the actors for any of the other roles, but Idris Elba, uh, as much as I love that guy, does not scream small city librarian to me. If Idris Elba was in the role of Mike, there'd be no need to assemble the other losers, because uh, I just think that Idris Elba would have beaten the clown to death years before. So, enough of my opinions on the fan casting. You know, who would you like to see play these roles? I think that that's more important. So, if you have anyone in mind, feel free to write in at WW... No, sorry. <laughs> if you have anyone in mind, just write in at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. So, let's just jump into the 1990 miniseries. How about that? So, it begins with very creepy Calliope music that cuts to a very dated logo before segueing into clever use of the photo album showing us the actors while simultaneously introducing us to the tones of the story of the time and the memories um then it reaches just a little too far and hits us over the head with creepiness with fake lightning crashing in the sky and i think that this opening sets the stage for how this adaptation is going to go um some parts are inspired while others are borderline parody now with that said the movie opens with an original scene not present in the book, with a little girl on a tricycle singing the Itsy Bitsy Spider, which is such a great nod to the events still to come. And the Itsy Bitsy Spider, as you'll know from the first podcast review of the book, it's a super creepy song. And then we get our introduction to Pennywise. It's just a laugh. It's all that it takes. It's just a laugh. A fun, goofy little laugh. And just thinking about that laugh just gave me goosebumps. Director Tommy Lee Wallace uh, smartly frames the shot through the perspective of the girl. The camera turned up at the billowing sheets of laundry blowing in the wind. We get our flash of a clown through the sheets, a nice friendly smile, and then again, not so nice. It is such a powerful scene. So terrifying. There's going to be parts in this movie that are just so goofy, but this they definitely stepped with their best foot forward uh, on this one, and it's very, very effective. And then we meet Mike, whose interaction with the cops provides all the information we need to know at the moment. Six kids are dead or missing. He's the librarian. The cops are clueless. There's something wrong in Derry. And at the crime scene, we get a photo of Georgie. What's great here is that all of this was in the book, but it wasn't emphasized. I really like how Tommy Lee Wallace took this scene, placed it up front, and used it as our hook. It works really well. The viewer wants to know why a dated picture is at a crime scene and why it has such an effect on his character. And I like it because, like I said, it's from the book. It's just it, it placed in a different part and overemphasized where in the book that it didn't. And this is what I love about adaptations. This is why I don't like when a movie just takes the book and the way it's in a book and just transplants it on a screen. This was a wise decision. It feels familiar, but it feels fresh at the same time. If the movie ended there, I'd give it an A. It has an effectively chilling introduction to our villain, as well as an equally effective opening with one of our heroes who remains steadfast in the pouring rain. Unfortunately, the movie doesn't end there. And unfortunately, we meet Bill who rather than being bald, has a lustrous ponytail. Nothing against Richard Thomas, seriously, nothing, nothing against him, but he just does not scream leader of men to me. It's the first of many casting decisions that just aren't uh, the best. You know, and then we're given the first of six sequences in which the adults overreact to the horrors presented within childhood. The segues in and out of 1967 are awkwardly staged, with the adult actors mimicking the motions, hand gestures, and poses of their younger selves. It's an unintentionally funny transition from present to past and vice versa, and it's so painfully dated that I could very easily see the technique used by, I don't know, Tim and Eric in Adult Swim uh, in a late night 
nightmare retro comedy. Now, right now, I'm sure that listener Tony Bargatti is probably yelling that I don't even like Tim and Eric, which I don't, but it doesn't mean that I can't seem uh, them using this framing device for an extended repetitive nightmare sequence in one of their skits. Do you even call them skits? I don't know. Anyway, we're then presented with a fade out to 1967 with the late Jonathan Brandis sick in bed and the paper boat sequence. And we're introduced uh, to a major problem in the movie, and that's the child actors. <laughs> I mean, half of the narrative takes place in the past, and it's up to the actors to sell us on the magic of childhood. The problem is, to me, they don't. And it's not necessarily their fault. In the novel, the, the, the gravitas of the events of 1958 could be cheesy out of context. And without the delicate hand of Stephen King and, and just everything that's so personal about childhood from the author being just transcribed into the page and that intangible x factor that that leaks from the the author you know into the work itself uh i find them cheesy here king made it work and it to me it doesn't work in in the movie you know it doesn't take long however for tim curry to pop out of the shadows under the sewer drain now the british actor adopted a a very strange new yorkish accent and he just revels in every line reading the scene itself happened so quickly, it would be forgettable, I think, that if it weren't for Tim Curry's performance. You know, though we first spot him from behind the flickering clothesline, this here, this is his true introduction, where he provides his name to the audience, and it's this scene where Tim Curry reveals the threat of the character. Again, he throws himself so deeply into this role, you can tell he's loving it. He seems to savor every line reading, and the first time he says, they float... He reads it with such a hungry satisfaction. It adds a little nuance to what could have otherwise been a one-note scary clown character. I'm going to play a, a clip from that scene where uh, Tim Curry delivers that particular line reading. And just pay attention, like I said, to the nuance of, of this line reading. Because it is incredible. Do they float? Oh, yes. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float Every time I watch that scene, I am awestruck at the performance of it. I just, you know, I mean, I just played the audio, but if you get a chance, uh, go back and, and watch the scene itself. All you have to do is just Google it on or YouTube it. Um, you know, just and just watch. Watch the, the way he moves his mouth. Watch how he slows down the character's mania. And all of a sudden, his smile is gone. By the time he builds up to his shout of, you'll float too, the menace is so tangible. I think that he's going to reach through the screen and grab me instead. And again, whoever they get for the remake, um, I don't envy the person. I honestly don't. Because I don't understand how you can capture the essence of that scene the way that tim curry did and as you know i mean they all float and you'll float too has has become um almost as famous as red rum um you know or or other you know stephen king catchphrases you know here's johnny you'll float too i mean they're they're up there so whoever has to say that line next you know, has to put their own stamp on it. And I can't imagine anyone else other than, than Tim Curry delivering that line. Anyway, we then meet John Ritter as Ben, who is now a New York playboy rather than a Midwestern loner. Now, here's the thing with John Ritter. I think he would have made for a good almost any other loser of the group. I think he would have made for a good Richie in his own way. I think he would have made for a good Eddie in his own way. I think he would have made a good Bill. You know, but to me, he, I don't know why, but to me, he just doesn't seem like Ben. It, to me, it just doesn't work. Um, regardless, I, I like John Ritter. John Ritter. I like John Ritter's presence. Um, and he just seemed like such a nice guy. Um, and I think that's a loss that he's no longer with us. There's just, it's unlikable about him. And I, I, I distinctly remember with his death how no one had anything bad to say about him. And, like, the behind-the-scenes, you know, clips they would have of him, like, how funny and kind and how on he was all the time. That's why I think that he would have made a good Richie, 
because uh, he seemed to have this this spirit that just couldn't be stopped. Um, you know, but regardless about John Ritter, uh, I don't understand why the character who is an architect, an award-winning architect at this point, has a uh, a phone on his bed with at least 10 feet of cord running up the middle of his room. With Ben's flashback, we meet most of the other losers, including Stan, who's actually dressed as a 2015 hipster, bow tie and suspenders. We meet Bev, who introduces herself to young Ben, who in the movie has just arrived to town. One thing they change here is the attack on Ben. Here, it happens in the school year. The importance of the scene uh, in the novel takes place on the last day of school. Um, and I think that it's very strategic and very purposeful that it takes place on the last day of school because it foreshadows the darkness looming over the summer and uh, the, the looming end of innocence. So to have it just take place smack dab in the middle of the school year, it doesn't work on the same magical level. Regardless, we're treated to the Barrens, and we get a great sense of the wilderness there. And any issues I have with the movie don't extend to the location of the Barrens. I think that that was well done, very well done um, scouting. You know, and during the scene, just as in the novel, an attack by Henry's gang causes Eddie to have an asthma attack. And this causes B, uh, Bill to, to flee to get the inhaler, but it's for nothing... As by the time he returns, Eddie's up, walking about, just spewing exposition. It really fails to show the crippling psychosomatic quality of Eddie's asthma attacks. And Ben, meanwhile, he isn't fat. You know, he's stocky, but he just looks like he should be playing football. I, I don't really think that he would be as tortured um, by other students, by by Billy or by um, Henry and the gang, as much as he as he is. Uh, he to me he doesn't look fat at all. A change in the movie is the inclusion of Ben's dead father standing in the Barrens rather than the mummy as depicted on the bridge. It's kind of too bad because that scene really stands out to me, and I really look forward in the remake. I, I hope that they include it. Because uh, like I said, just the image of the stars start, starting to come out, and King captures it perfectly with it being that, that January cold and just how cold it is, and the, the stars look like diamond chips up there, and... Um, you know, the, the clown is standing on the ice, not casting a shadow, and the balloons are going against the wind. It's it's so horrifying, and there's such a wrongness about it, and it's such a vivid image that I, I really would like to see it translated on screen. With that said, I, I really like the image of Ben's dead father standing perfectly still in the water. It's very creepy, it's very effective, and I also love the image of the weed-covered skeleton lurching from the water. So even though we are not treated to the the clown on the ice uh we are treated to a pretty vivid image in its own right and then we meet adult bev whose clothing line is emphasized here uh and we first meet her at work rather than home and i again like i said earlier with the introduction to the movie um i appreciate changes like this because it doesn't detract from the characters it sticks with the book it just plays out different enough to feel fresh with that said, I mean, we still get the bedroom scene uh, with a very unconvincing Tom. And as much as I didn't like the scene in the book, it's, it's such a watered-down version here. I just wish they'd gotten rid of it. In the flashback, we meet creepy Alvin Marsh, and creepier Ben, actually, who exhibits qualities more akin to a stalker than a love-struck boy. Uh, you know, standing in the bushes staring at her. And when they first meet, he stares her down in the classroom like a lion about to eat his prey. And in the movie, it's it's Ben who, who introduces Bev to the group, and I don't understand why he has to introduce them. Seeing as how they're in the same class, it doesn't make sense. Eh. And we meet Stan and Richie. Uh, Richie, by the way, is played by Seth Green, who's pretty obnoxious, but also very, very, uh, pretty great, I'd say, as Richie. You can tell that there's something different about his quality of acting compared to the other characters. I would say that of the child actors, uh, he's clearly the most famous of them all in the long run, uh, and probably for good reason. You know, he comes onto screen with so much more of an insuredness than the others, and whatever that X factor is, uh, Seth Green has it much more so than his, his peers in these scenes. We then meet Eddie, 
who is no longer married and lives with uh, his mother, who is more bird-like uh, and, and a crone than, than obese. And then we're treated to uh, the flashback in which we receive some pretty serious timeline inconsistency with Eddie telling the losers that he wished the summer would never end. So we're in summer, and seconds later, his mother tells him he can't shower with the other boys at school this week. So it's stuff like that that I have issues with, and I don't understand the necessity to keep placing it in school. And when Eddie showers alone in the giant room, we get an original scene with Pennywise um, rather than the book's leper. And I don't mind the change. I Again, I think that it's, it's very effective. I think that it works. It's super creepy. Um, and Eddie seems so vulnerable there. Uh, so I, I, I think that that's good. It was, it was a good move. By the time Eddie's story rolls around, the issue that I have here is that it's pretty clear that Pennywise isn't even trying to kill them. Um, which is an issue to me. Uh, in the book, the, the kids band together in part because they're survivors of the clown. There was an attempt on their lives, but they survived. And they managed to escape. You know, here he just taunts them as if he knows they're going to gang up against him. Uh, so yeah, this is a major issue that I have with the movie because it renders the villain pretty weak. And if it wasn't for Curry's performance, he'd be a pretty ineffective character. And what's the point of taunting them when he could just kill them? You know, recently Seth Graham Smith, the screenwriter of the, the remake, stated that the new film will bring back some of the viciousness that um, of the book that they couldn't do with the miniseries because it was for broadcast. Now, I hope that doesn't mean that we're going to get gore for gore's sake, but instead means that the children will be in actual danger because at no point do I feel as though the kids are in actual danger. We then get our introduction to Richie, played by Harry Anderson, um, changed here uh, as a stand-up comedian rather than a DJ, which is a change that I think uh, fits the character better. Um, in the flashback, we see Richie attacked by the werewolf. And before that, we actually get a cameo from William B. Davis, famously known as the cigarette smoking man from The X-Files, who orders Richie into the basement of the school to get Bev's father, a janitor, to clean up the cafeteria mess. There he encounters the teenage werewolf who, again, doesn't want to kill Richie, just taunt him like all the others. We then get Mike, who presents to the class about dairy. We get the apocalyptic rock fight, and we get the possessed photo album. Now, if the movie is cheesy, and it certainly is, one thing that works so well is the moving picture and Pennywise doing cartwheels down the street before jumping to the front of the picture and telling the kids he'll kill them all, even though when given the opportunity, he doesn't. Too bad it ends with Stan screaming no and the kids saying yes. Um... And I know that that's not a great description, uh, but it's just something that just works on the page, right? You know, Stan's refusal to acknowledge the things that are occurring and the other's insistence that, yes, something is happening and the only way to combat it is to acknowledge it, embrace it, and do something about it. It works in the book. It does not work here on the screen. You know what else doesn't work? Jonathan Brandis staring off into the distance and having his help me, you killed my brother Georgie, you bastard. Let's see you now. Let's see you now scene. I hate it so much. Uh, it, 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 it's, it should be a very vulnerable scene. It should be memorable. It should be a turning point. It's putting someone out there that doesn't have the capabilities to deliver this scene. Um, and just setting him up for failure, which is what happens in my opinion. It does not work. Anytime you have someone shouting to the heavens, it's going to come across as histrionic and cheesy. So you need to be able to frame it in a way where it works. Here, having young Jonathan Brandis attempt it does not work. Shame on you guys for doing that to poor Jonathan Brandis. Um, and then the first of the two-part movie ends with Stan... Uh, who remembers heading into the sewers through the pumping station. The standout scene here is the coming of the deadlights in the pipe, which takes Belch. Um, just the way that it, it comes and there's the, the music and the sound and you just see the rotating lights through the, the holes in the pipe looks awesome, right? And then like it grabs Belch and just the way it slowly pulls him in, um, very uncomfortable, like his back must be broken, and just pulls him in and you just see movement in the well or in the in the pipe and and just slurping noises it's very disturbing and then all of a sudden the light starts to come back it's really well done it's so well done uh but unfortunately ends with the overdramatic shot 
of Henry's hair turned white. And it's the best that we're going to see of the Deadlights because, as I'll talk about later, the Deadlights really make no sense in the movie whatsoever. Um, works perfectly in the book, I think. You know, others might think otherwise. But to me, the Deadlights work um, in the book because so much more time is spent with those cosmic overtones. Here, not as much. And then we get what's supposed to be a climactic battle, which seems lackluster, just so lackluster compared to the book. In the book, the the, the, the kid's final battle with it corresponds with the adult final battle with it. Um, and both take place in a fairy tale cavern, as well as beyond time and space. Comes about after a thousand pages and after we have spent a significant amount of time. In the book, it builds and builds and builds to this moment. In the movie, Bill has his you killed my brother, shout out the sky moment, and then bam, we're off to kill the monster. And then we return from the sewers, we get the swear to me scene. Again, it's cheesier than it should be. So here, take a listen. Swear to me! Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, wrong clip. My bad. I don't have the actual clip. Um, but it's just it's one of those things where, I mean, even if I did play the clip, it wouldn't capture uh, the awkwardness of it, of Jonathan Brandis staring off across the water, of um, the, the, the cheesy group hug at the end. Um, to me, it just doesn't work. Again, I don't think that it's Jonathan Brandis' fault. To me, it's just a clunky line. And a clunky series of lines from each of the subsequent losers that any actor would have had difficulty getting it across, let alone a child actor. In part two, um, Bill returns to Derry and reunites with Mike. Uh, one thing that Tommy Lee Wallace gets right is the reveal that Mike lives in what was called Poor Town and still is. Uh, Mike reveals Silver to Bill, and and that to me it just it can't measure up with the book. Um, you know, to me, in the, in the movie, Silver is just a bike. In the book, it's it, it's so much more than just a bike. With that said, I, I think that Tim Reed does a hell of a job selling us on it. I think that, in general, Tim Reed is fantastic in this movie. And I think that anyone that plays the part of Mike, um, just as anyone playing the part of Pennywise, uh, is going to have big shoes to fill. I, I think the exact same thing with Mike, that I think that Tim Reed was phenomenal in a very, very... Um, understated role right and one that clearly is the the least flashy of all of them but one that is integral to the narrative uh, and i think he does a great he's the glue he's the glue that holds everyone together i think he does a great job with it um and we check in with richie um who rather than ben is the one going to the library and <laughs> fittingly harry anderson plays richie's fright during the scene is wildly comedic which gives the movie a little bit of levity and i appreciated that uh I think all in all, this is a great scene with exploding balloons filled with blood and a super annoying Pennywise who is shouting so loudly that Richie comes across as a lunatic to the librarian. It's it's a chaotic scene full of madness that I think really encapsulates what the character of Pennywise is all about. And I wish that more scenes had this kind of mania um, and truth. You know, everything else seems very, very... Um, sentimental um and forced but this one this one rings really true to me i i liked it a lot ben takes a trip down to the barrens soon after um and watches a young 90s version of himself get terrorized by some bullies while he crouches in the bushes like a child murderer you know despite the recent murders uh the terrorized boy isn't really concerned if there's a strange man lurking by the water and way to stop the bullies ben on his way out of the Barrens, uh, he drives by Pennywise on the side of the road, which is a truly unsettling image of a clown standing at the edge of the forest and just pointing at the, the camera and laughing. It's super creepy. And then we have the Eddie placebo scene, which to me is the perfect example of how toothless this movie is. On one hand, you have a clown uh, that truly doesn't want to kill kids, and here you have a Mr. Keen that's pretty harmless. In the novel, King made great pains to show that behind Mr. Keene's demeanor and despite his seeming want to help Eddie, there's a streak of sadism where he enjoys the torment that it causes the young boy. With Mr. Keene, King personified the adults in Derry, and that is missing here. With young Mr. Keene depicted as just genuinely kind, someone that just wants to help Eddie. And I think that that's a huge missed opportunity 
in really showing the horrors of, of Derry. Um, and then we get the Mrs. Kirsch scene, which I think plays out nicely. Uh, when, Mrs., when Mrs. Kirsch uh, starts slurping the tea the way that she does, it's really unsettling. And then the image of a rotting elven marsh in the dress is horrific. The only thing more horrific than that is apparently that in England at this time, it's all the rage for the men to grow ponytails, as evidenced by not only Bill, but Audra's uh, agent, director, uh, whoever it is. Regardless, uh, if the two men in Britain in this movie are any indication that stands to reason that 100% of males in the UK had ponytails in 1990. We then have the reunion, uh, which includes a swooning Bev and an even more hysterical Eddie, uh, and our big chill dinner montage. Um, I don't like the scene. Uh, and again, this feels very forced to me. Uh, but what I do like is the nice little Chinese fortune cookie monster effects. Um, I, I think that whoever did the effects in this movie, uh, I think they did a really, really good job. We'll get to that later. And then we head over to the library. And I think that in a nice bit of consistency, when we're back in the library, uh, we see the remains of the blood splattered balloons. After they find out that Stan is dead, Bill recounts Stan's encounter with a clown in a scene that merges Ben's mummy on the bridge with the standpipe and the house on Nybold Street. So we get we get some elements of the book played out very, very differently here. And again, uh, they reference the deadlights. Um, well, like I said before, without the cosmic portion of the story, the deadlights just don't make any sense. Uh, and we're given a Ghostbusters scene in the library where the books start flying off the walls. Uh, okay. All right, everybody. Um, so the solution is they form a circle and hold hands. Now, uh, if you watch the guys in this scene, uh, especially Bill and Ben, it looks like a very specific type of circle. And it looks like they're doing a lot more than just holding hands. Seriously, watch this scene uh, with the context that I just provided and you will never be able to watch it any other way again. Um and then later, Mike fills in the gaps for the losers, and we learn that the cycle takes place 30 years, um, every 30 years rather than 28, which makes sense. And I'm glad that uh, Tommy Wallace or whoever wrote the screenplay uh, just rounded it up. I, 30 is a nice round number. Um, it's it's small detail, but you know whatever. We also learn that through telling rather than showing. Uh, of the adult's decision to ignore the horrible things in Derry, when Bev relates the story of the neighbor walking um, away from her harassment at the hands of Henry. And it made me realize in this scene that so much of this movie is about telling rather than showing. And that's why I believe that the Adrian Mellon and the black spot scenes from the book are so important with demonstrating the real horrors of Derry. Now, I stated in a previous episode, I don't know which which number it was, but it was one of the, the It reviews, um, that these interludes that aren't essential to the narrative, but so essential to the tone, would work wonders as short films or webisodes presented online before the movie's release. You know, that way it lays down the groundwork for the history of the town, as well as uh, laying down just the groundwork for the intangible horrors within Derry without ever taking away the, the time needed for the central narrative. And I think that it would be a viral success. I think that people would be talking about it if if we knew that, you know, every couple weeks or once a month for six months leading up to the release or whatever, we would get we would get a small little mini movie, five minutes, ten minutes, um, to I think that that would be incredible. And what a great countdown to uh, the movie's release. Or even in between uh you know, part one and part two. Regardless, I, I just think that with fan interaction being what it is today, um, marketing a movie can be just so much more than just trailers. And later, all of the characters uh, go to the rooms they've rented. Even Mike, who owns a home in Derry. Uh, and then Henry attacks Eddie. Um, or he attacks Mike. And the, the scene from the... Uh, book is consolidated here because in the book he attacked Mike in the library, Eddie in the inn, and so now he just has uh, the attack take place on Mike in the inn with Eddie being there. Um, and the library is cut out entirely. It, it just, 
it, to me, it just doesn't make sense with Mike being there in a rented room when he doesn't make that much money. He owns a home in Derry. However, with that said, this scene does include Ben making out with Pennywise, which is a nice misdirect and a cruel gesture from Pennywise to Ben, playing on his very vulnerable heartstrings in a way that the novel counterpart never did. Plus, it includes the great Kiss Me Fat Boy line reading from Tim Curry. Um, and after Mike is nearly killed, the losers decide to amscray until Ben convinces them otherwise, and... We get another flashback to young Ben asking for help just in case we'd forgotten the scene, which had taken place less than two hours before. Uh, they head into the sewers through the pumping station one more time for their final encounter, which is where the movie seriously goes off the rails in the worst way possible. Now, I have said this before, and a lot of people simply do not like the reveal of the spider. That dislike is extended to the book, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the reveal of the spider in the movie. If you listen to the three-part book review, you know that King constantly teased and foreshadowed the ultimate spider reveal. And when the reveal itself comes, it comes at the climax of both the 1958 and the 1985 storylines. It's a great one-two punch that is sorely missing here. Also missing is any of the macroverse, the ritual of Chud, and the turtle elements, which make the spider reveal here come out of the blue without any sort of universal or cosmic context. So here, it's just a spider. It's a physical spider whose heart they rip out, as they do in the book. But again, in the book, the real battle happens in a place beyond time and space where the consequence of losing the battle is being trapped in another space for eternity. In the novel, it's a cosmic monster of Lovecraftian descent. Here, it's just a big spider. A spider looks more like a crab, actually. It's a truly awful ending. There's not much to discuss other than every single thing about it is terrible. The fireworks exploding into deadlights. The fact that it uh, has taken the form of a giant spider that could easily kill the losers, yet rears up to use its deadlight unibeam pushing the spider over and pulling out its heart. The ending in the book is apocalyptic. You know, here, the ending is just abysmal. As is the epilogue with Audra, Bill, and Silver riding down the hill. Again, it's something that works so well on the page, but without that emotional buildup, the moment's just not only unearned, but it's incredibly, incredibly mawkish. So, I mean, that's the movie. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I just think that it, if it wasn't for Tim Curry, we would not be talking about this movie right now. Um, now, with that said, there's one last thing that I want to talk about um, before getting into the, the book versus the movie, and that's the effects. From the clown makeup uh, to the burbling blood in Bev's sink, the skeleton climbing out of the water, the werewolf, the mummy, rotting Alvin Marsh in a dress, the Chinese fortune cookie creatures, uh, the this is battery acid, you slime moment. The thing that I'm most impressed with after Curry's performance is the quality of special effects. And even though the spider uh, is a reveal, it doesn't translate well um, and won't make the cut in the remake, according to Corey Fukunaga, you have to give ABC credit for doling out the cash to build the spider puppet. You know, I don't think it looks good, but, you know, I, I, I have to give them credit for, for going there with it. It didn't work out. But uh, to me, all the other effects look great. Um, and they're practical. And it makes me worry that in 2015, um, when the movie eventually comes out in, what, 2017, 2018, um, that's going to be CGI. So that makes me worried because that's just the reality of movie making nowadays. Uh, now I just want to get to um, the longest book versus movie section of my uh, movie reviews. Typically when I review a Stephen King movie, I compare parts of the the book to parts of the movie to see who the definitive winner is so it's gonna be it's gonna this one's gonna take a while so the first is we have the house on nybolt street versus the pumping station okay so as you know the house on nybolt street plays a significant role in the novel but does not make an appearance here instead we get um the, the closest thing to a creepy house and that's the pumping station so I would say that you have to take these two concepts and hold them up against each other. Um, and to me, it's going to be the house on Nybold Street because the pumping station doesn't have a personality. Not too much time is spent there. It's simply a plot device to get into the sewers, whereas the house on Nybold Street is almost a character into itself. And it 
is your your childhood haunted house, right? Where the the boogeyman lives. It's really terrifying. So I mean, I mean, it's not it's not even close. I have to go with the house on Nybolt Street. Then we have a uh, book. Just the book kids versus the movie kids, and I'm going to break them down one by one. So book child Eddie versus movie Eddie. Nothing against movie Eddie, but child Eddie um, comes out of the book as being one of the most brave characters. Um, he's the one that really goes through an arc. He is... Um, his just his his asthma is, is built up more. It's more understandable. It's more sad the relationship that he has with his mother it's just it, it's just more and better in the book so i'm gonna go with book eddie book uh kid ben versus movie kid ben um again um i'm gonna go with book ben book kid bev versus movie kid bev um i'm just gonna go with the the book um Book Child Stan versus Movie Child Stan. Um, I'm going to go with Movie Child Stan. And I don't remember why I wrote that, but I guess I, I had to have had a reason. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I could tell you more. But in my notes, I wrote Movie Child Stan. So I'm, I'm going with that. Uh, then we have um, Bill Kid versus Movie Kid. It, I'm sorry, Jonathan Brandis, but I have to go with the actual leader of people. Uh, and that's that's uh, the book. And then Mike Kid from the book versus movie Child Mike. And again, I'm going with the book. Now we have uh, Richie, uh, the kid, the book versus the movie. And I want to give look. I it's it's the book. It's the book because Richie, as you know, if you've read, if you listen to the three part review of the of the book, Richie plays a significant role in both the child and the adult portions of the novel, as a child and as an adult. Um, but so it, it's it's a book because he's he's not just a member of the losers. He's the number two. He's the right hand man. He's a leader um, in his own way. But I really want to give props to Seth Green here, who handled this difficult character well. I, I it, it's not necessarily how he envisioned him, but he did such a much better job than I remember. And he's clearly the best of the bunch of the kid actors. Uh, it's just. I would I would go with with him, but it's just that the character in the the book just really comes off the page. Now we have the adults. Um, so Eddie, book versus movie. Um, now I mentioned in the book how it could be interpreted that Eddie was gay, um, and I think that the same argument could be made here for for movie Eddie, um, who in the movie is depicted as a lifelong bachelor, a virgin who has never slept with anyone because he claims he never loved anyone, and his confession before he heads through the door feels like he's coming out to the group, or as much as a 1990 network television will allow, right? Um, and the heaviness of the scene is completely subverted by Richie's, you're a virgin? I can't help you with that, pal. Um, which I like, uh... So I, I just, I, and again, I, it's my prediction that in the, the remake, the, the character will be gay. Um, but that's just a side, that's a side note. Um, in between the, with the two characters, I'm going to go with, with, um, book Eddie, because this interpretation of Eddie is just so much weaker, I think, than the others, um, more whiny. Um, and I don't think he came across as whiny, uh, or weak in the, in the book. Then we have, um... Ben, and nothing against John Ritter, um, but I just think that he was miscast in this role. You know, like I said earlier, I think that you, you could have cast him as any one of the other losers, um, and I think that he would have worked, but I just don't think that he works as Ben. I'm going to go with uh, with book Ben. Um, then Bev, uh, Annette O'Toole does a good job, but I'm going to go with the book on this one. Uh, Stan, um, I'm going to go with the book. Bill, I really, really, I, it's, I, I don't think that I have to really answer that one. Uh, and then Mike, movie, boom. Tim Reed does an awesome job in this role. He sells us on the horrors of dairy in the beginning and throughout. And so I, you know, typically in all of these, I'm going with the book, but I'm going with Tim Reed on this one. And then we have Richie. Um, and you know that I think that the Richie character is important to the story. Uh, and I'm partial to saying Book Richie on this. But I can't say that Book Richie is better than Harry Anderson. 
so I'm going to go with a cop-out on this and say Ty. Um, and it's partially because my wife is a huge Night Court fan. I think she'd kill me if I said otherwise. Uh, the problem with Richie in the movie, though, is that in the book, he's a strong character, a very strong force for good, constantly standing up to the clown. And here, uh, he constantly voices his desire to leave. Um, I think that it's an honest interpretation uh, for a character to want to get the hell out of the town and not go into the sewers um, and not put his life in danger. But I, I, I just, it's not as noble a characteristic as the characteristics he has in the novel. With that said, um, I think that Harry Anderson is very magnetic as Richie, so that, that's why I'm going to go with a, t um, a tie. Hey, guys, and then the last um, character we have here is a tough one to talk about. Um, and it's Pennywise, right? Um, it's tough. It's tough. Um, you, you know that I think that Tim Curry is awesome. But as great as he is, the character is just not much of a threat. You know, in the book, he's ultimate evil. He's the boogeyman. He's it. He's a force of the thing that you is, are sure is there. You just can't see. Um, and here, you know, he's a talker. He's not much of a doer. So I'm sorry. Um, I have to go with the book on this one. Well, about the spider? Book versus movie? <laughs> sorry. I... I I'm teasing. Um, and then we have the the deadlights. Um, in the movie, like I said, it doesn't make sense. It's never explained. And the cosmic qualities of the characters aren't really presented. Um, I do like the, the scene with the, the pipe uh, and, and the noise that it makes. I think it looks cool. I think Belch's death is pretty memorable. But I have to go with the book because it just doesn't make sense in the movie. And the, the spider's lair. The book is so weird. I have to go with the book. You know, it has the little door, which they do include, uh, but it's just not the same. And the walls that are glowing, and it's it just everything about it is just so weird. I have to go with the book. And lastly, um, I said that Pennywise was the last character, but I lied. Um, the last character is Derry. And when comparing the book to the movie it's very very clear that in the book Derry is a character in the movie Derry is a setting so ladies and gentlemen uh this is it uh i am concluding my analysis of it the movie which brings us to the end of our uh extended stay in the city of Derry, maine um Everyone that has stuck around these past this past month, thank you for sticking around. This is the the longest time that I've spent on one particular work, and it's not just because it was a thousand plus pages. Um, you know, I don't. I, King has written some other long novels. I don't think that it's going to generate as much content as this one did. Um, I don't know if anything that he's written is going to be able to generate as much content as as this one did. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. You, you never know. Um, the, this whole rereading process has surprised me constantly with what I find things to talk about. Um, you know, I didn't expect to say as much as I did about Christine, for instance. So you never know. You never know. Uh, you know, it's as much of a surprise to me as it is to, to all of you. But I do want to say that I, I think that it's clear at this point that it is something that uh, really stands out to me um and one it's it was the the doorway for me it was the the gateway drug so to speak into the world of stephen king and i hope that everyone enjoyed it and i'll be i'll be honest i'm looking forward to, to moving on um and the next novel in the chronological order of publication is eyes of the dragon so make sure you stick around for next week as i dive into that uh as i release the eyes of the dragon review i am also releasing a simultaneous bonus episode in which i analyze the connections between eyes of the dragon and the dark tower so fans of the dark tower make sure you stick around for that all right everyone uh in the meantime everyone have a fantastic week 
And if you haven't done so already, uh, feel free to subscribe on iTunes. Uh, write me a line at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Tumblr and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I will see you all here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. <laughs>